Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Many of you, this is the first time you're back with us since uh, the new year. We met on the 25th as a church, and we met on the 1st as a church, but I know many of you are traveling. It is a joy to be back with you this morning. If you have a Bible, would I, may I encourage you to open with me to Matthew chapter 5, uh, is where we're going to hang out with in this morning. Matthew chapter 5. Um, if I didn't already say, my name is Trevor, and I'm the lead pastor here at Risen. And if you're new and just joining us for the first time, welcome. We do hope that you would feel welcome, that you would experience the hospitality of God in and through us. And, uh, and, and this morning, I am excited to um, begin a two-part, just a mini kind of series in how to read your Bible. Uh, uh, hopefully with pra practicality, hopefully helpful to you um, as we, uh, are, many in the church are doing our Bible reading plan. How many of you are joining in our Bible reading plan by show of hands? Oh, lots of you. Hey, well done, everybody. I'm so thankful for that. I already had some conversations with some of you. If you want to get involved in the Bible reading plan, there's copies available at the Next Steps table before you leave. Um, but we thought it would be helpful as we're trying to read all of God's Word together this year as a church to begin by spending a couple of weeks on how to do that. And so um, this week we'll give you, I think, some helpful tools for how to think about the Bible. And then next week, some more practical stuff. And then we'll be in the Gospel of John like we normally are walking verse by verse through Scripture in just a couple of weeks here. Um, but this morning we are in Matthew chapter 5. All right, before we dive in, uh, let me tell you a, a short story about a guy named Don McPherson. Uh, Don McPherson was a sort of scientist, and he was interested in how to create glasses that were protective eyewear for surgeons who were doing laser surgery. So Don McPherson in 2000 created these glasses, and, um, and he was testing them out, and he was wearing them while playing ultimate frisbee with some of his friends. At one point, one of his buddies asked to, to check out the glasses that he's wearing. His buddy put them on, and he turned to Don and said, I can see that the orange cones are orange. And Don was like, well, yeah, like these glasses are designed to be protective, and they should help with some saturation. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm colorblind, and I've never been able to see like this before. I can see colors in ways I've never been able to see. And Don McPherson realized in that moment that while he was working on glasses designed to help surgeons, he'd got a new group of people that would desperately and could desperately use his help. He founded a company called Enchroma, which creates these glasses for people who are colorblind. They're about 300 bucks. And if you can watch, if you've never done this, you can watch videos online of people who've been colorblind for a long time put these glasses on for the very first time. Um, colorblindness affects men far more than women. About 1 in 12 men is colorblind. Only 1 in 200 women is colorblind. That's just one of the challenges of being a man. Um, so, uh, but uh, if you watch these videos, they're incredible. I mean, there's this one that I love. There's a bunch, but you can Google these later if you want. But there's this man, he, he just looks like he's strong. He's, he's chiseled. He's, a, he's, he's, he's a been around a while. Looks like one of those like, real tough guys. And, um, and he puts these glasses on, and he just starts to cry because he can see clearly now for the first time. 
Um, uh, the, in the same way, um, this concept of not being able to see clearly and then putting on a pair of glasses and all of a sudden everything comes into focus is how we ought to think about Jesus in relationship to the Bible. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not just because I can see it, but by it I see everything else more clearly. So too, we as Christians, we see the Bible through Jesus, and Jesus helps us see everything more clearly. As Christians, we believe that God has not remained silent, that we can actually hear God speak, and we do that primarily through his word, this Book. This is not just one book. This is a collection of books. This is 66 books that are all combined together to make up the Old and the New Testament in a book we call the Bible. And this Bible is God's word. It's how we hear God speak to us. It is central to our faith as Christians. And at the same time, this book can be challenging. It can be confusing. Recently, I saw someone online who was saying Christians believe in unicorns. And the reason is because in the King James Version, there's a word that means like horned beast that we maybe think is a rhinoceros or something. But back in the day, they just the, the word literally means has one horn. And so the King James Version translates to unicorn. And then people read this book and they go, you believe in unicorns? And then many Christians are like, I don't know. Do I believe in unicorns? Maybe I believe in unicorns. This book is hard to read. Does God hate shrimp? That's a question you might ask when reading the Bible. Does God flood the earth in Genesis chapter 6? If you're in our Bible reading plan, you read that this week, and it probably caused some feelings for you as you begin to articulate, why does God do this? What does that look like? This book is more challenging to read than it's ever been in part I mean, for us as a society, in part because there's less biblical literacy than there's ever been. We no longer enter into institutions where in which this book is the book that we put our hand on. This week we had a congressman who said, I don't want to set my hand on this book. Instead, I'll take a comic book. Strange times we live in to swear on a comic book rather than a book that has been the most influential and popular book in human history. Nevertheless, it is tricky. When you read Matthew and John, where to start? Revelation, Genesis. So I want to take the next two weeks, this week and next, just to talk about how to read your Bible and to give you some principles that will help. I, I can't cover everything, and we could talk for hours about how to do this, and I hope that you will talk, and I'll try to provide you with some resources as we move through in the next few weeks here. Um, but this morning, I want to give you some things to hold on to that will help when you open this book to see it more clearly. So, as I've already laid out, the glasses we put on are Jesus glasses. We are followers of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that he lived. He taught like no one else, that he died on a cross, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day, and that truly he is God with us. And so what he says about this book shapes how we think about this book. So if you have a Bible, once again, we're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. 
Jesus is teaching in a sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, and he has already begun to gather a crowd together and to say things to them with authority. He's already said that the people who are really blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's already said that the people who are really blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as Jesus begins to teach, people begin to wonder, what is Jesus' relationship to the Bible? And here is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to take this section of the Sermon on the Mount and I want to use it as a framework for how to see the whole Bible. I have three points this morning. These are the three. First, I want to talk about how Jesus fulfills all of Scripture. Secondly, I want to talk about how Jesus embraces all of Scripture. And third, I want to talk about how Jesus satisfies all of Scripture. So these are the three points that I'll make this morning. Let's begin with the first one. Jesus fulfills all all of it. Not all if it, all of it. That's my fault. All of it. Jesus fulfills all of it. When Jesus talks about the prophets, is my mic cutting in and out? Yes? Would it be helpful if I use the handheld? I'm going to. Whoa, whoa, hold on. There you go. All right. I'm going to hold this the whole time. All right. Um, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, that is his way of saying the Old Testament, right? The law and the prophets is code for the, the Old Testament. And Jesus says, as he's teaching, you may begin to wonder if I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. Many of you don't have much of an issue with the New Testament. You read the New Testament and you kind of accept it, but it's the Old Testament where things get a little bit messy. And so maybe for you, as you're reading your Bible, you feel comfortable in the Gospels and feel comfortable in the epistles, but it's those old stories, like when we walk through Judges as a church, that cause you some confusion. Maybe you would be tempted to say, I don't know that we need the Old Testament. But then here Jesus comes and says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus articulates that you can't separate the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, we attempt to do that through this period of time called the intertestamental period. Um, and, and at the same time, I, I wonder if calling the Old Testament old unintentionally conveys to us that it's unimportant. For Jesus, you need to see that he in no way, shape, or form is saying that it's any less important. In fact, he thinks that he is here to fulfill all of it. He is the point of all of it. 
Jesus is the climax of all of Scripture. If you want to understand what the Bible is about, it is about Jesus according to Jesus. One of the best things we've ever get, received or given as a gift when our kids were little is something called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Often we have friends who have a child. We will give them a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a brilliant little book that takes the Old Testament and just again and again and again as you're walking through the Old Testament shows you that each of these stories is about Jesus. If you're doing our Bible reading plan, this week you read Genesis, you read Mark. We're in those two books and a little bit of Psalms. When you're in Genesis, you should have read about Adam and you should have thought about his unfaithfulness and you should have longed for a faithful Adam. Jesus is the faithful Adam. As you continue to read, you will discover that the problem in the Bible in the Old Testament is death, that, that through Adam and Eve, death comes, and then what God promises to do is deal with death. He promises that through Adam and Eve, there would come one who would deal with death, pointing again to Jesus. You read a little bit further, and you see Noah, and you see the flood, and you see the ark, and you wonder who is going to sort of save us from God's judgment. You, des you desire someone better than Noah, someone who, who would be faithful to God, who wouldn't get off the ark and immediately get drunk and naked. And that points you to Jesus, a better Noah. As you read the Bible again and again, Abraham and his covenant, you long for the one who would fulfill when Abraham goes wrong. It's going to be Jesus. He is Adam, but better. Moses, but better. David, but better. The whole thing is about him. It all points to him. Every part of the Bible points to Jesus. We see the whole Bible is pointing to one person. Jesus even articulates this. In Luke chapter 24, after Jesus died and was resurrected, Jesus is, appears on the road to Emmaus. And in this encounter with some of his disciples in Luke 24, verse 27, it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus sees the entirety of scripture as being about him. He comes not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. It's strange walking around the city right now because we are still um, on, the, on the side of a pandemic where many of the buildings that are abandoned by businesses have not yet to be filled. The promenade in Santa Monica is like a ghost town. You just walk down and it's just business and then empty building after empty building after empty building. And make no mistake, some, some developers will come in and they'll tear everything out and start anew. But there will be these moments in the city where a building has been abandoned will then be filled with new purpose and new meaning. And that is kind of the picture that Jesus comes. He comes to say, no, 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 I have not come to knock down the Old Testament. I have not come to level it out. Instead, I've come to take it and fulfill it. I am the point of it. Jesus doesn't stand against the Old Testament, not once. He's the lens through which we see all of it. We read everything through him because the whole thing is about him. 
When you're reading Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, a question that should be going in the back of your mind all the time is how is this about Jesus? Allow it to point you to him. So Jesus fulfills it all, verse 17. Secondly, Jesus embraces it all. He embraces all of it. Not just that it all points to him, not just that it will all be fulfilled by him, but he points back to the authority of it. And he says more than just, it's true. I mean, a phone book can be true, right? Like you can open up a phone book and it can have a list of information that's true information. Jesus doesn't just say that the Old Testament is true. He takes it a step further than that. In verse 18, Jesus says, For I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away, but will pass from the law, until all is accomplished. Jesus says you can't discard any of the Old Testament and that all of it will ultimately be accomplished. And he uses the strongest language that he typically uses. He says, truly I say to you, which is Jesus' way of saying, what I'm about to say is true, true. It's super true. It's very important that you understand this. He says, with his authority, so long as earth is earth and heaven is heaven, this entire scripture is still valid. And he says this interesting thing, right? He says, not an iota, not a dot. In the old King James Version, it says, uh, neither jot or tittle. Um, what this is referring to is in the Hebrew alphabet, right? A yod is the smallest sort of mark you can make in Hebrew. And a dot here is like a little letter extension. And so Jesus says every stroke of the pen in the Old Testament, all of it, every part of it is to be accomplished in and through me. That, that's what he says. The whole thing. And the reason I bring this up is because sometimes people try to use Jesus to discard the Old Testament. Now, as we move forward, um, how to read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus takes some skill that we won't have time to unpack all today. But I want you to first and primarily see that, that Jesus can't be used to discard the Old Testament. There are plenty of people out there right now who take Jesus and then they attempt to say, I follow Jesus and because I follow Jesus, the Old Testament is not important. Or maybe they do this thing, which is they take the red letter. Some of you have red letter Bibles. And these are Bibles which are wonderful, right? Because the New Testament has the words of Jesus in red. And you read this and you're supposed to say, this is wonderful because this is God's word. These are the very words of Jesus. This is a red letter edition. This is special. The problem is that there have been some Christians who have taken the red letters and then they have tried to pit them against the black letters. They've tried to say the red letters are important, but the black letters are not important. The problem with that is, you know who's all about the black letters? Jesus is. So, so you actually, it doesn't, it's actually helpful to see what Jesus says in the red letters, but it's not helpful to try to pit the Bible against itself. Some people try to use Jesus in order to say, listen, I just try to take the Bible and even the difficult, complex things, and I just try to think, man, if Jesus is just, if he's just all about love, 
then um, I'm going to discard whatever I don't like because I'll, I'll just go with Jesus and his love ethic. The problem with that is that when Jesus was asked to summarize the Bible, he said you can summarize all its commands into two, love God and then love others as you love yourself. No, Jesus was not saying, I give you a new command that ignores the Old Testament and ignores all of God's other commands. And so here's my new love ethic. No, Jesus says that the whole Bible is the word of God. And when we understand the Bible, we understand that the summary of all of it is love of God and love of neighbor. So this means that when we encounter difficult passages— we are confronted with the fact that Jesus doesn't squirm at parts of the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus embraces it. The whole Bible is about Jesus, and Jesus is about the whole Bible. And if you start pitting Jesus against parts of the Bible, you're actually picking a fight with Jesus. Augustine once said, if you accept the parts of the Bible you like and discard what you don't, it's not the Bible that you submit to. It's yourself. I'd add that if you find yourself saying, I'm a Christian and I worship Jesus and I follow Jesus, but then you disagree with Jesus on the word of God, that you're actually not following Jesus, you're following yourself. We must read the whole thing, submit to the whole thing, seek to understand the whole thing, not just parts. Yes, it is true that there are ceremonial laws in the Old Testament that God gives to mark his people, that Jesus comes and says, I have satisfied this, and now all foods are clean. There are places where there are commands where God says, this is how it is to be for Israel, but this is not how it is to be for the church, and I was doing something there, and it's now fulfilled in me. Yes, it takes work to understand your Bible, but you cannot use Jesus to set aside the parts of the Bible that you find difficult. Jesus, if you follow Jesus, you need to know he embraces all of it. Not an iota, not a dot will pass. The smallest dot and strokes will be accomplished. We submit to the whole thing. We read the whole thing. We embrace the whole thing because our Lord and Savior did. Which means That when you encounter people, if you say, I follow Jesus who embodies and defines what it means to be loving, and you proclaim, Scripture says this thing, and someone says, that doesn't sound very loving, our response is, oh, you don't know what love is. Because you don't define love, Jesus does. And he says that it is. Because he said you could summarize the whole thing by saying it's about how to love God. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. So Jesus embraces all of it. Jesus fulfills all of it. And then in verses 19 and 20, Jesus satisfies all of it. Notice what he says in 19 and 20. Jesus says, Therefore, 
Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees were known for their exceeding righteousness. They followed everything to a T. That's how they saw themselves. And they were attempting to be very righteous people. And so as you're reading the Bible and then you hear Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that should cause something in you to go, well, if that's the case, I'm in trouble. Because if Jesus says that, that, that the law is designed that we might love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, all, like everything in us, and then love our neighbor as ourselves, well, we find ourselves going, I fail at that every day. And then we look at the, the scribes and, 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 and the Pharisees and you see that they're, they're just constantly obsessed over it. How, how is my righteousness supposed to exceed their righteousness? They knew all of it. Well, as we will come to learn, while they knew all of the rules, their hearts were disconnected from God. And so part of what God's word does for you or is designed to do for you as you're reading scripture is not only should it all point to Christ as it does, not only should you see it all embraced by Christ, but you should see constantly that that the story you're reading is your story. We read Judges as a church. And what's Judges all about? Judges is an entire book that says, in those days, Israel had no king. And so what did they do? They did what was right in their own eyes. And if you're paying attention to that series at all, you should have left every week with a sense of, you know who else does what's right in their own eyes? Me. I find myself doing that as well. Oh Lord, how I need your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. You're reading the story of Abraham right now. If you're in our Bible reading plan, you're reading that story and you discover that Abraham makes a covenant with God where in which God says to Abraham, if you don't keep your end of the covenant, what's going to happen to you? And God says, I will deal with your failures. And so as we're reading it, we discover the Pharisees and the scribes, they couldn't become righteous before God because they were only interested in trying to do the law and they weren't actually right with God by way of a righteousness that would come not from what they did, but from God himself. What you need more than anything else is a righteousness that comes from outside of you and comes to you through Christ. Our redemption, our righteousness comes through Christ. And so as you read the Bible again and again, you should be made aware of your need for Christ. Every page should awaken you to your need for Christ. Do you this morning understand your need for Jesus? And we live in a world today where Many people will say, I, I, I just need to do more good than bad. They wake up in the morning, they're not at peace with God, and their sense is, if I just, I know I've done bad things, I did horrible things, but I'm just going to stop doing them, and the way to be righteous, the way to be right with God is I just need to do a bunch of good things. 
long time ago, uh, Charles Spurgeon was speaking with a man and he, he, they were having a conversation about how to be at peace with God. And Spurgeon uh, said to the man, how are you at peace with God? And the man said, well, I, I did a lot of bad things when I was younger, but, um, but I told God I'm not doing those bad things anymore and I'm only gonna do good things. And Spurgeon asked him to imagine that he was at a pub and uh, that, he, that he rang up a large tab before the pub owner. Let's say the guy was out and he was having a good time and in a fleeting moment said, drinks for everyone. And everyone had a good time. Then the crowd dissipated. The bar owner shows up and puts before him a bill he can't afford. Let's say that bill is $24,000. The bar owner says, hey, you had a good time? You owe me $24,000. You're in debt to me. And the man says, listen, I've been thinking about the decision I made, and I feel terrible. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm never going to do it again. In fact, every bar I ever go to, I will never do that again. I'm going to, from this day forward, be the kind of person who never rings up a big bill like that. The bar owner says, that's great. You owe me $24,000. He says, no, you don't understand. I've made a commitment that I know I owe you the debt, but I made a commitment from this point forward, I'm never going to incur any more debt. Partner's like, that's fine. You still owe me $24,000. And that's sometimes the way that we think about God. Spurgeon then says to the man, that is the same with God, that we don't incur a debt to God, that we then say, God, but now I'll do good things and that covers my debt. No, instead we say to God, I can't pay my debt. Lord, how on earth can I satisfy this debt? And if you're paying attention and your eyes are open and your ears are open, you will hear God point you to Christ and say, you don't have to pay it, I'll pay it for you. And that is what it means to be a Christian, to be someone who says, God, I see my debt. I can't pay it. And God says, I will pay it for you. Would you allow me to pay it for you? I will send my son. He will die the death that you deserve. He will be buried and raised on the third day. And then I will put my spirit inside of you, which will then enable you to then follow and walk after me imperfectly. But yes, it is true. When you become a Christian, your desire to do the things of God, all of a sudden you have a desire to follow God in a way that you didn't before. And this is always a hard thing to say, but always the right thing to say. If you say, I'm a Christian, but you have no desire to love God, to follow God, to obey God, if you have no desire to be convicted, to be redeemed, if you have no desire to walk in his ways, you are not a Christian. Because God says that when you Give yourself to him. He will change your heart. He takes your heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh so that now you you hate things you used to love and you love things that you used to laugh at. Every week as a church, we gather together and we we pray a prayer of confession where we, we hear God's law, God's requirements, God's commands, and it should awaken in each of us every week a sense of, Lord, I need your forgiveness. And then every week we are reminded that if you have Jesus, you have peace with God. If you have Jesus, you have God's presence in your life. This whole book 
should point you to your need for God. He satisfies the requirements of the law. He is the perfect man who offers us his perfect righteousness. The only way your righteousness will exceed that in the scribes of the Pharisees is if the righteousness that you have isn't something that you built. It's something you received from a God who offers it to you freely by way of his son, Jesus. You want to understand this book with all its complexity? You have to read it through the lens of Jesus. He fulfills all of it. It's all about him. He embraces all of it. You can't set any of it aside. It all must be dealt with. And he satisfies the requirements of the whole thing so that you might have peace with God. If you're here this morning and you have peace with God, I hope that you're able to rest in that. And if you are here this morning and you do not have peace with God and want peace with God, it comes freely through Christ. By turning of our sin, by turning to God and saying, God, I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins. Come into my life. Give me a new heart. Give me a new mind. Direct my path and my steps. Forgive me and cleanse me. And he promises that he will. Let us pray. Jesus, let us not make the mistakes that we often make in our world of attempting to use you to get out of the difficult things that you say in your word. We want to be good readers of Scripture. We want to be right readers of Scripture. We do want to read Scripture through you, but we do not want to ignore your word. We want to celebrate all of it. We want to trust in the promises that you have made that it will all be accomplished. And Lord, I do pray that as we are reading scripture together as a church, we would more deeper and deeper, we would go into your word. We would discover our need for you, that we would see our sin on every page, and we would see that though our sins are many, your mercy is in fact more. It's the greatest news in the world, God, that that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. There's no one here this morning who is outside of the ability to be forgiven by you. There is no sin that you did not die for. There is no offer of redemption and forgiveness that, that is unavailable to any of us who hear and respond to this call that you're making through your very word. So God, I do pray that we would be a church that would understand your word, cherish your word, read your word, hear your voice through your word, that we would read all of it, that we would read it all through you, Jesus, that we would be convicted by it, challenged by it, and that each time again and again we would turn to you for mercy and forgiveness, knowing that you do not run out of grace and forgiveness for us. Help us to be a people of your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.